the injustices that we can just see on TMN and turn the channel or the, just the inequities in society we've just grown numb to. What if you couldn't grow numb to it? It would break your heart. You would constantly be heartbroken. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Chris Hoke, a jail chaplain and minister to Mexican gang and migrant worker communities in Washington State. His experiences are recounted in his new book, Wanted, a spiritual pursuit through jail, among outlaws, and across borders. Through his work with the organization Tierra Nueva, Chris co-founded a coffee roasting business, Underground Coffee, which employs men coming out of prison and addiction and connects them to agricultural partners in Honduras. Hoke's work has been featured on NPR's Snap Judgment and in print with Sojourners, Image Journal, Modern Farmer, and Christian Century. Here's the interview. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. Your book is called Wanted, A Spiritual Pursuit Through Jail, Among Outlaws, and Across Borders, which is a wonderful title. So I'm happy that we were able to get you on the show to talk. That's an honor. I like the book a lot. One of the things that you say early on about the book was that it is a mix of true crime and spiritual adventure, which might describe the type of book that is most likely to get my attention of any kind that could be written. So I was, uh, I was definitely, um, interested in reading it. And I think I read it in about, I don't know, within 24 hours, I think. Um, and so I read a lot of books for, for what we do. And, uh, it's just, it's great to get one that is both educational, enlightening, um, inspiring, and just plain fun to read at the same time. That's a, it's a rare combination. So it was really nice job. Well, we're, we're only, uh, like what, less than two months since publication date. And so, uh, hearing that it's, it's just ecstatic for me to hear on my first book. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So we'll, uh, we'll get deeper into the book in a minute, but we'll start off, uh, with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Uh, well, thanks uh, you invited me to, to, to come to the show uh, a couple weeks ago. I, I looked at that parable and I, I realized I'd seen it before. I'd seen it in uh, some like Native American looking posters and different drug and alcohol recovery centers like <laughs> at the lobby yep. um, waiting for, for guys who are going to appointments. And so I thought I knew it, but I never really thought about it for myself. But when, when knowing I'd, I'd be on the show and thinking about it, what came to mind is, is what if we didn't read the parable um, about our own, uh, within the individual, um, the good wolf and the bad wolf within me, but what if it was the good wolf and the bad wolf in inmates and in those who are locked up in society? And having a responsibility, not just to ourselves individualistically, but to others, which 
do, do we see it in others, uh, in our in our policies, in our correctional system? And so I've seen, uh, as being a chaplain in, in Skagit County Jail in Washington State here the last 10 years, um, that these men have both inside them, and that when they're fed a daily diet of, of control and distrust and being deprived of more and more of their just basic human realities of, of, of comfort and respect um, and, uh, and even touch. And that's, that's something I write about in the book. Is um, a, ch- a chapter called No Contact. And that came from a, a story I did with uh, an NPR program a couple of years ago. I decided to just write it out, which is just my story about how when I met with these gentlemen, uh, in, as a pastor, as a chaplain, a young pastor, I didn't really have a pastoral style, but I found myself meeting in these one-on-one lawyer visitation cells with them. And when they were in a safe room, um, and where I, I didn't have anything to preach at them, but I would just say, can we pray about that? And they'd oftentimes take my hand, um, willingly and that kind of touch. And they would just, oh, they would just exhale and throw their head down on the table and just like rest. And then we would just pray silently. They just start to weep. And I was able to just bless them. Something opened in me, something opened in them. Um, and the same thing was happening in these, these groups we were having where men would able to, we could go around and lay a shoulder, a hand on a shoulder and pray for them and bless them. And had been cursed their whole life by society, by their family, by their enemies. We blessed these guys, how much they were just weak and to the most honest, tender confession and begin caring for one another in their cards. Uh, several years ago, just the basic function of touch was taken away from us chaplains. And one-on-one visits can only happen through the glass. And I saw when they were not fed this kind of human basic of, 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 of physical contact and of, and of mercy uh, that they it was so much easier for them to become hard. And I found myself saying, when hearts don't have a place to, to break, they become hard. And so when, when we feed hurting men in our society, uh, like I'm saying, distrust, control, deprivation, they become worse. They, they're the bad wolf grows, but it just say greed, hatred, fear. Um, but when we when we feed those in society, we're labeled bad. Um, a diet of mercy and support and compassion and hearing uh, the trauma and and the deprivation they've already had in their life, and how to give them what we want for our own children. Um, how many of these guys are so resilient and they become leaders and they're becoming leaders in our organization called Tearing Away Love in Washington State, and they're. There's just so many treasures of society that are locked up in our jails and prisons. And when we see the good wolf inside them, they're really, so many, many of them are creative, dynamic, compassionate leaders. That's a very interesting perspective, A, with you know the, the, the people that you work with that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's the first time anybody talked about, has used the parable in, you know, what are we feeding in the people around us? You know, what are we, mm. what are we recognizing? What are we drawing out of them? What are we looking for? In them. Yeah, I mean, just made, I mean, just this conversation made me think of a book that had great influence on me many years ago when I was in my early twenties. Was um, Dostoevsky's novel *The Brothers Karamazov*, and kind of a spiritual mentor, Father Zosima, this Orthodox Russian Orthodox um, monk, kind of a holy man. He oftentimes says, "All are guilty for all." Um, and when he was faced with a, a murderer, he he knelt down and asked the murderer's forgiveness, which Logically seems insane, um, but the kind of orthodox spirituality is that we're so interconnected, and so we as a society did not see the good wolf in you, and so we, I, I, on behalf of society, ask for your forgiveness. You've been so deprived that you've gotten to this, this despicable state in your life. Yeah, but, I don't know. It's beautiful stuff. It is. Well, what I'd like to do is read a couple passages from the book that um, talk about. You know, I think that highlights some of the things that, that you we're talking about here. And just for our listeners, um, you referred to it a little bit there. But basically, the, the book is a story of you, you became a young chaplain in a, in a jail up in northwest Washington. Um, and the book is a story of your journey through that, as well as several of the, the men that you met and their stories and, and how that all intertwines with your spiritual view. Is that, would you say that's a reasonably short description that's somewhat accurate? Sure. 
<laughs> All right. So I'm going to read a, a paragraph here. And you're, you're talking early on about how you were always the sort of person that enjoyed the evening. You sort of came alive more at, at night than you did during the day. Boredom, yeah, total night out. Yeah. Boredom disappeared with the sunset. Now I wanted to step out the door and walk the warm suburban sidewalks and look at the desert stars. I wanted to read more books, then write some myself. In this hour, I suddenly knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to pray. I don't think this was a religious impulse. I had no sense for tradition or ritual, the bowing of heads or the folding of hands, no interest in robes or prayer books. Nor was I longing for something transcendent, in the sense of looking outside or above our mildly troubled suburban existence. Rather, I sensed there was a sweeter world hidden under the thin skin of this one. I thought that was a beautiful way of describing the spiritual search. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, with you know Dostoevsky's character, Father Zosima, who's an Orthodox Russian uh, monk, I'm discovering now as I go into, as I study mysticism, as, as I'm trying to find a language for this kind of spiritual experiences I've had with men in the Skagit County Jail for years. Um, as my study of mysticism has brought me into a, a closer study of Orthodox uh, Christianity, um, Orthodox in the sense of kind of like even pre-Roman Catholicism, like the first 300 years of Jesus' followers and how they understood, interpreted Jesus' teachings that we have in the Gospels. And so much of it is this, um, I don't know, I, I call it practical mysticism. Like, like the Catholics kind of relegated the mystics. They're kind of the weirdos. They're on the outside. Um, they had these experiences in monasteries, whereas the Orthodox never, they never kind of ghettoized the mystics. Everyone had this kind of very, they call it uh, uh, noetic or intuitive kind of spiritual uh, center to them, this kind of radio inside of their minds and their hearts. Um, and that it's, it's getting more in touch with that within ourselves not having an abstract kind of afterlife uh, narrative, but something that's very here and now. And so I think I, I think I always intuited that maybe the Orthodox monks would say as a kid, despite my kind of evangelical upbringing about what prayer was. I think I was intuited that it wasn't just a transcendent thing, but that the kingdom of God was here and hidden. And that when we were given eyes to see, we could touch into a hidden realm that can transform how we live and act. Yeah. You also say at another place that, and I, I love this, this line, that creation begins not in a clean vacuum, but in the place of darkness and chaos. And I think that's so, it ties to what we talk about on the show a lot here, because we talk very often about how it is those very challenges we have that can make us great, not, not necessarily in spite of them, but because of them. Yeah. I mean, I've just, I've just, I've seen guys have spiritual awakenings in jail that I've never seen happen in myself or someone I know in a church or in religious colleges they go to, but in a place of total chaos. I mean, imagine be getting locked up. Like you're, not only does your life have enough chaos and darkness to get you there, but once you're there, everything's falling apart. Oh, you're yeah. in the midst of your, you're in the midst of your nightmare. And right. that, that's where a relationship with yourself and God can begin. It just, it seems so right that that's the first two paragraphs of the Bible. And so that's in the book I'm saying that's how this, I, I came up here to the Northwest to learn with this guy, Bob Eckblad, who was writing a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned. Because I want to read the Bible, but I didn't trust any of the churches or seminaries I was around. But I, I came up here to be with this dude, and that the jail became a seminary. And how he read even the first page of the Bible is like, that sounds right. Yeah, you describe some of those early readings when you were first in the jail and, and with Bob, and when you started going back yourself and... Uh, I'll read another part here, which is, When we leaned over these ancient stories from opposite sides of the table, we saw ourselves and our lives reflected back. Men born blind. Guys who'd lied and screwed over their brothers like Jacob. Self-pitying prophets like Elijah. On the run from governments they'd assaulted. Hiding and suicidal in the deserts. Violent persecutors like Saul having mystical encounters with the risen Christ out on the roads. These flawed characters always came up against a presence, a voice, sometimes an angel, a vision, and received the unexpected, new sight with mud and spit in their eyes, a felt presence that wrestled with him till dawn, a fresh cake in a jar of cold water in the desert, forgiveness and a calling to tell the nations about this experience. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to expand on that? Uh, you can. 
Um, is it is it interesting for you to hear your own stuff read back to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just with a different audience in mind. Like, I don't know who's outside my window or out there in the podcast darkness right now listening right. to this. But uh, just the awareness that strangers could be hearing that instead of me just kind of tweaking at it, the glowing screen of my word processor. Yeah. For me to just hear those words now, yeah, it, it, it reminds me what I was trying to get at in the first place, um, which is uh, there's there's no system in the Bible. There's no such thing as systematic theology. I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe a helpful category, but it's there's always this just raw elusive, mysterious spiritual presence at work doing scandalously beautiful things and meeting nobodies in the, in the wreck of their lives. And then later on, they go to tell about it. And then later on, the people in the you know temples and people with robes and people with degrees are the ones that try to make a system out of it. But there's just, the Bible is just this series of report after report. And I would say, you know, flawed report after flawed report of like forensic reports of, I don't know what the fuck happened. But I was blind and now I see. I was trying to kill myself in the desert and shake my fist at the heavens. And mercy opened up my heart. I found myself fed and refreshed. And now I can't stop telling people about it. And that's so these are just reports after reports that something is loose and alive out there. And that's what I'm trying to pursue. In our email exchanges, I, I express that I'm not Christian, but I love the, the spiritual search that you describe so much in the book. And you talk about the early um, monks, you know, often known as the Desert Fathers that would would go out and they were, you know, they were searching for God. And one of the things it says is that they cherished tears as a sign of God's presence. Yeah. That they would pray for the gift of tears so that through sorrowing you may tame that which is savage in your soul. And I think that's such a, um, I know for myself that often those moments of that opening that seems to accompany tears, if it's not like the tears that I get when Chris kicks me in the stomach, but the kind of tears that come when, when you just see something so beautiful or powerful is an opening. Yeah. Yeah. It's an active opening. It's, it's a sudden opening like laughter or, 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 or crying at beauty. Like Paul, the apostle Paul says something in the beginning of Romans when he's just kind of for chapter one, he's kind of chewing out all these religious people. They're all, you know, judging each other. And he writes this letter and he says, stop judging each other. You guys are hypocrites. You guys are knuckleheads too. You're all knuckleheads. Don't you realize that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? And I, I, I think if I, I would want to throw so many other words in kindness, like I would want to say, don't you realize that it's, the, it's seeing the beauty of a transformed heart that leads us to repentance? I mean, I used to argue with people back home about criminal justice policy, I guess I still argue about it, <laughs> um, about capital punishment. And it would just harden the debate. But when I just stopped arguing about it and pouring my life into the jail and some of these guys I love, and many of the guys who are in the book, especially um, my good friend and now coworker named Neeners, um, so many people love Neeners. They're just, I just went back to Southern California last week, not only did go to Humble Industries, but um, 45 minutes uh, east in the town of Upland in Southern California where I grew up and my friends meeting him and this guy with tattoos on his face and his neck and his arms and they've heard, oh yeah, this kind of Chris is working with this, this gangbanger guy who's changing up in Washington. But they see him and just what a delight and how fun and how cool this guy is. So many people, like there's a, 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 a breaking of hearts uh, in so many of my friends. I could just see it. But, uh, seeing the beauty of a transformed life leads us to repentance. I think that's the repentance God's calling for. It's not like, okay, I suck. I'm going to change my ways. But it's when you see uh, something that's so much more beautiful than the cage you've been trapped in. Right. And I think it's it's easy to see the poetry in um, such dramatic transformations as the ones that you are you're talking about. And I think they are they're they're beautiful and they're inspiring. And I think that they can be a way for us to see that in ourselves, even if the circumstances aren't quite so dramatic. That that ability to change and to open and to be somebody who's very, very different than the person we've been. I think we put ourselves into a limited range of the ability for me to change. Like, well, I'm kind of this person, and maybe I've got a couple degrees of latitude one way or the other. But you see some of these things that you're describing, and you realize, like, that's a story we're probably telling ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to, 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 to something you said just a couple minutes, or maybe just the beginning of that, um, of it, it's easier to see kind of a, a larger shift 
or contrast or, or narrative arc of transformation in some of these guys in the jail uh, whose lives have had extreme pain, neglect, violence than in our own lives. I think that's completely true. Um, I say it in one of the chapters how, I, for me, I feel like the jail is like a warped existential mirror, like a funhouse mm-hmm. mirror at the carnival, that it's it's like a political cartoon. It's an exaggeration of what's going in my own heart and life. Um, and so when I can see a life change in a big way, or like a magnifying glass, I can tune into the more subtle experiences of change and mercy in my own life that maybe didn't have such extreme darks. Um, but I, I, I can see that shift in myself. And so I, I've wondered sometimes if part of my, uh, part of my work with men in the jail is, is doing my own work of repentance and receiving love vicariously through these gentlemen. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The chapter is titled Hearts Like Radios. I guess I'll just do some more reading. And the reason I'm reading so much of it is that it's just, I I think that the writing is so beautiful and I feel like the conversation is going to miss a lot of that if I don't just read some of it. So I'm doing more of that than normal uh, for listeners who are wondering, but that's just because I think it's, it's the best way to get to some of this stuff. Well, I'll just, I'll just go into it. For some time I've imagined all of us having a fragile nerve inside of us, like a spiritual antenna deep within our core. Some people, I've thought, simply have an abnormally large antenna inside. Poets, prophets, psychopaths, your slightly crazy aunt who's drawn to the paranormal, who some days is more compassionate than anyone you know, and other days is aggressive and convinced everyone, including the government, is conspiring against her. In my work both behind jail bars and the years I continued with homeless youth on the streets of downtown Seattle, I've met a number of young people with schizophrenia. I've wondered when talking with them about some of the abuse and trauma they've survived, whether the internal antenna nerves of some people are damaged. Maybe they could be exposed, jutting out like a bone from a broken arm, picking up way too much of the otherwise faint spiritual frequencies coursing through the world, from beyond as well as the person across the room. I've wondered whether some of these people slam heroin or meth or any street medicine they can find as a way of jamming cotton into their spiritual ears. It's not a real theory, just how I've pictured that part inside of us all. I thought that was a very interesting description of, A, you know, schizophrenia, but uh, mental illness in general, and just a way of thinking about... um, people who are more attuned to the to the sensitivity and you go on to talk about how if you look at people you know certainly some of the biblical figures that that are looked up to the prophets they from the outside and certainly if you put them in today's world they would look crazy absolutely we'd lock them up (laughs) right we'd lock them up quick quick yeah i mean i think that's where the jail along with 
Bob's very, very Protestant bent to really stick close to scripture and hold scripture tightly, um, which I was not inclined to do after growing up in church. But the jail gave me a, a new place to like get even closer to scripture. Like, wait, let's kind of like throw off the kind of pastel, um, kind of a Sunday school version. We think we know scripture. Let's really look at that stuff and let's read it with some people that um, can read it for what it is. It didn't have that church upbringing, maybe. And seeing that this, these characters in Bible were equally as, as raw, if not more off the hook than, than my reading partners um, in their jail scrubs. And, and so, yeah, seeing how raw the, the prophets are um, and how they get, they get beat and locked up and thrown in a hole, especially Jeremiah, my, my friend Nieners, who, who features largely in the final chapter called Fire in the Hole about his time in solitary confinement and somewhat mystical experiences in the solitary confinement. He started really identifying with Jeremiah, this guy who, who was just weeping and weeping and weeping and it was, was miserable. And his the words that he had were were silent. And he was he was thrown in a pit. You know, it's, it's called the hole. And it, these are extreme experiences. And so, as I tell in the chapter, at the same time that I was coming across some of these folks in jail, but some of these really lovable types that I'd accompany, one of them would even crawl through my my bedroom window some nights and just broke his way into my life over and over in a totally nonviolent and loving way. But this guy was so tormented. Like he was hearing stuff all the time. I, I was I was forced to really not just write off like, oh well, dude hears voices, that's crazy. Um, but, but really kind of be curious about the content of what he was hearing. When at the same time our ministry was in a season where we were getting into more contemplative prayer and even some of the charismatics were like, um, you can hear God speak today. Just quiet yourself down, focus on God, get a pen out. Trust kind of intuitively. I don't think they use that word. I think the Orthodox would say, you know, trust your kind of intuitive spiritual antenna. Ask a question and write down what comes to mind. It won't sound often say in the jail. Oftentimes it won't sound like, curse, this is the Lord. <laughs> it'll just kind of flow through like a thought, but better than your normal thoughts. Um, write it down because it's so easy to write off. Just it's easy. It's so quickly to write off schizophrenics. It's that easy to write off God speaking to us. It just sounds fleeting and crazy. Um, write it down. And while I was trying to like tune in and really silence my mind and tune in and pick up on this possibility of the faint message of God's heart whispering through my mind. And then like 10 minutes later, I have to go upstairs and take care of this guy suffering from schizophrenia and swinging a golf club through the room. Uh, I, I could calm him down, not by telling him those voices aren't real, you know, cussing out through the windows. They're like, all right, he's got this big antenna. Um, let's just use it. Let's just dial into a different frequency. All right, let's just let's just pray right now. Which seems, I guess, impractical, kind of like de-escalation. Doesn't seem the right thing to do. But it, it seemed kind of more honoring to him. Right? Okay, you are hearing shit. Let's just turn to a different dial, bro. And tuning in to God. And the things that he heard were immediate. And they were beautiful. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is hearing everything that everyone downstairs in the listening prayer class is trying so hard to hear. Like, I don't hear God's voice. This guy's hearing it. And he's also hearing, you know, voices saying like, piece of shit, fuck you, fuck that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to beat this out, right? Uh, we don't necessarily have to, but we can if you want. Uh, oh, no, no, I don't care. I just oh, want to make yeah, sure. I'm no, not, we don't care. I'm not soiling your show. You know, <laughs> our, our, <laughs> our show has been plenty soiled by this point, so. <laughs> okay. Not I mean, by, not by you, but by 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 uh by sixty episodes of me talking. So no, you're fine. Carry on. Okay. So these guys just hearing these voices, just you know, just just mean, just shit talking voices in their head, but they hear it, and so um, it just it, that just forced me to kind of think that the world of mental health and hallucination and the world of spiritual listening maybe were not so different. And there might be some, there's obvious differences. So I have a lot of people that have family members that really suffer with mental illness and they can sometimes take issue with what I'm saying. Uh, if, if they feel I'm just romanticizing mental illness. Um, but I think if they really hear me out and hear the stories of the people I work with, like, no, I have no illusion about the absolute insanity and meaninglessness and torment and psychic turmoil these people can go through. And yet some of them maybe. Part of their mental illness is um, they're really picking up on stuff, 
And then in the, through the chapter, I try to explore, like, well, what's the implications of that for the Western modern mind? Are there really spiritual currencies out there? And they're not just projections of their own wounded consciousness bouncing around in their head, but maybe they're picking up on stuff that, you know, uh, the next generations of physics in 60 years will finally tune into. Right. You talk about how if there are those frequencies that maybe these folks, as you described earlier, it's it's like the antenna is is damaged. It's overly sensitive, so it's it's picking up all the uh, good and bad. And you do describe with with some of the folks that when you ask them more about the voices, there is another voice there that is kinder, more loving, generous voice. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's maybe they've 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 been tuned into that channel many times in their life. That, but they had more people telling them they were fucking nuts than they had people saying, oh, you, that's God, he adores you. Stay on that channel. Later you describe a quote from uh, the Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Herschel, where he says, or Heschel, he describes the prophets not so much as official spokesmen with verbatim divine pronouncements, but as humans with a severe sensitivity to evil. To the prophets, he writes, even a minor injustice assumes cosmic proportions, and the prophet's ear is attuned to a cry imperceptible to others. They are so sensitive to what we overlook or have ceased to feel, they appear insane. Heschel says that the prophet is primarily burdened with the pathos of God, an infinite vulnerability. Man, I should read that every morning. <laughs> not, not my own writing, but Heschel. Uh, yeah, that it was, it was neat to be thinking about this stuff that we've just been talking about and then to go back to anyone listening to the show, like buy that book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, The Prophets. It's amazing. Um, and that's from yeah, his first chapter where he just defines like what, what is the prophet? And he kind of tears down these kind of Western ideas and he's trying to get back to kind of the, the weirdness of the Hebrew imagination. He's tearing down all these Western Greek philosophies of, you know, people that kind of hear these divine pronouncements, like they're just microphones. And it's just like, no, 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 the prophet is someone like, to use now my language, whose antenna is so swollen and is so large. They're picking up on everything. Their heart, the heart of their radio, is so big and so sensitive. It's as big and as sensitive as God. And 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 the, the injustices that we can just see on TMN and turn the channel, or the just the inequities in society we've just grown up to, what if you couldn't grow up to it? It would break your heart. You would constantly be heartbroken, and you would constantly be in love. You, you, your, your your eyes would never be dry. That this is the heart of God, and the prophets are the ones burdened with a heart that big. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of of thinking about it. And so, like Heschel, he's so cool. He's, he he kind of goes to the root of a lot of our Western suppositions, and he says, like, kind of the Stoic philosophical tradition that we're still in. He says is that you know, wisdom or godliness is like this impassibility, being unmoved. Um, um, I don't know enough about Buddhism to comment on that, but I, I do sense there's a certain detachment. There's a, there's a loving detachment, but I also know in all of us, um, we don't want to suffer. And so it seems the opposite direction. It's like the cross. It's running headlong at suffering, where so many of our philosophies are about avoiding suffering and being serene and at peace. But yet there's this opposite direction of the Hebrew imagination of love means embracing the suffering. To love is to suffer. And to avoid suffering is to slowly be less of a loving person. Yeah. Buddhism is interesting because that is certainly one interpretation of it, is that it is a, you know, if you are detached, if you have no preference in anything, then you suffer less. And then there's another, you know, group of people in Buddhism that talk about finding that uh, soft spot underneath everything, finding that sort of words you use, that infinite tenderness, that um, learning to be okay with the essential insecurity that comes with life, like embracing it and not trying to pretend it's not there. So it's, it, I, I wrestle with those questions too. I'm a, I'm a, I align a lot with Buddhist thought. And I, that is one of those questions that I sort of wrestle with a lot, which is around that, well, is detachment really the ideal state? Is that what is that what spirituality is? And I think that's a, I don't think that that's what's really being taught, but I think sometimes it's hard for us to hear or it's not being presented well in a way of what's really there. 
Yeah, you're probably right. But that is a, you know, I, I do I do think that question of suffering and, you know, I was talking recently on on one of the episodes about working with what you can change and what you can't change and how, um, you know, is this idea of, you know, Stephen Covey had this idea of a circle of um, concern, which is like the broad world, everything you sort of concerned about, and then a circle of influence, which is what you can actually act upon or do something with or be involved with. And that he said that if you spend all your time in your circle of concern, that circle of influence actually starts to shrink. Whereas if you spend your time in that circle of influence and you, you keep working at it, then that grows. And that makes a lot of very intuitive sense to me. And then I also go, but is that sticking your head in the sand? And I think the challenge is like you describe the work you do in the jails and the, the I mean, there's stories in your book that are just heartbreaking and the, and the prison system. And we could, we could flip around and find uh, 10 other major areas of the world, poverty or sex trafficking, or that are equally painful and heartbreaking. And what's the right response to that in a way that allows us to be useful and compassionate, but not completely just overwhelmed by grief? That's a great question. I mean, just the way you're framing it. I like that. What did you say? Stephen Covey? Yeah, Stephen Covey. He wrote the guy who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, yeah, I missed that one. I've heard of that title. I should have read that. I, I like that because I think that helps explain something I, I touch on really quickly in the chapter that tells kind of how I came up here to the Northwest and to do what I do in a jail. But in college, I went to UC Berkeley and, man, talk about a, a circle of, con- of concern, like uh, just every class and walking through Sproul Plaza and hearing about you know, injustices happening everywhere in the world. Right. And and it's so many of my peers just getting like road scholarships and, and summer internships, and they're all changing the world. I mean, I mean you're aware of too many mm-hmm. uh, problems in the world. It's a huge circle of concern, and I had zero circle of influence. Uh, it was just me, and I was dying of loneliness and uselessness in the world, and that's when I was most suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I needed to come up to this tiny jail uh, in, a, in a tiny um, you know, leaving the Bay Area into a little Skagit Valley, Washington, I'd never heard of, into this small confined room, this confined jail. And then within this confined jail in this tiny cell, the size of a closet, at one table with one person, and then to start to see the power of mercy and of prayer and of being together truthfully with someone. And that started to, um, I started to come alive in that space. And I don't know, I'm just rethinking through the story yep. with, yep. with categ- categories you just gave me. And I think now my 10 years later, as we grow our, our uh, coffee roasting business, Underground Coffee, and where we're fundraising stands for guys like Neeners and others, on um, guys who have left that, that life to become kind of fellow outreach workers with me and our staff grows, my, uh, my circle of consciousness is growing and we're growing Humble Industries and speaking in Nashville and in North Carolina a couple of weeks. It's growing now because, um, like you're saying, the circle of influence finally took root somewhere and it's something I really care about. It's connected to my heart. Right. And it's been, yeah. And your circle, you know, that your circle of influence has definitely grown. I mean, I'm, I'm reading your book and, and, uh, you know, talking to, to lots of people about it. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of it. I just, I always find that concept fascinating and, and to try and figure out what is the appropriate, response to mm. to suffering because it is everywhere and there's a there's a degree of compassion that I feel like you know we have but it it, it can be it can become um crippling and 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 despair is a uh, you know as you talked about your you know early on for you it was a pretty overwhelming thing Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. 
Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I do have a question. A couple times through the book, you talk about that even while doing this work, you enter into despair because you've got, certainly there are, there are success stories and there are people who make dramatic transformations in their life. And yet there's a lot of people that that is not what happens for a variety of reasons, whether that be the prison system they're in, the gang life that they were in that won't leave them alone, uh, demons from before that they can't quite shake. How, how do you, you, you talk about wrestling with it in the book a couple of times. Where are you at with that right now? I'm still learning how to love. Um, I mean, that's, that's, the same problem that I have with the men I'm working with is they loved at one point and then they got hurt. They got rejected. They got betrayed maybe by their girlfriend, by their, by their family, by their best friend, by their homie who ratted them out or, or they got assaulted in prison or their kids said, you know, screw you. I don't want you anymore. And, and so we protect ourselves because that hurts so bad. So we, we forget how to love. Um, it's the same for me. I would have thought as I am a pastor now for 10 years that I would just be growing in love. But I find it's it's harder and harder for me. There's some I've loved and loved and so many of the people have not been able to reciprocate. Um, and it's, it's sad enough if they die in prison, if they get shot down by federal marshals um, when they can't bear their own pain and they get just so addicted to a, a chemical cozy blanket and shove heroin in their veins and don't wake up. That's bad enough, but maybe this is selfish, but what hurts worse is someone that I've really seen. I've gone fly fishing with and I've, and I've done their budgeting with, and I've bounced their kids around and laughed with and called them my friend. And when, um, when they don't call me back and when I don't know what I did wrong or if I can analyze their own shame or why they're hiding from me, but when I've lost a friend and they've turned away from me, it makes me very careful in wanting to call someone else my friend again yeah. and wanting to share life, wanting to share life with them. It makes me want to go find more white bearded hipster, um, <laughs> uh, you know, craft beer loving dudes with <laughs> neat, with neat glasses in Bellingham, like me who, who won't break my heart. Um, like some of the guys that I've shared these years with, um, it's really hard. Yeah. That is a difficult path. I mean, I've, you know, I talk often in the show, I'm in recovery. And unfortunately, you know, I've got a lot of friends who have made it and, and a fair number of people who didn't. And uh, that is, that is hard. And I don't know that what you're dealing with is exactly the same. But I, in, in recovery, we have the concept of, of it being, um, you know, of, of, of it being a disease, the, 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 um, the alcoholism or the drug addiction and that, that that just tends to become more powerful than, um, I guess it's an, it's, it, it, it gives it a way to not take it, to try not to take it as personal because, um, it's not that that person doesn't, doesn't love or care. It's just that they're overwhelmed by something that they simply can't, can't deal with, but it doesn't change the fact that it still, uh, you know, breaks your heart. When we got to the end of the book, um, you know, at the end of the book, you are this guy Neeners that is, you know, he's throughout the book in a lot of different places. He's close to finally getting out. And I finished the book and I was like, oh no, did he? I mean, like, it was like a cliffhanger. I was like, I'm hoping to God this guy got out after, you know, all the other heartbreak you've described. And so I was very uh, happy to hear that, that he had and things were going well. Yeah. I, I um, uh, I thought about that. Like, you know, I guess in any nonfiction work, like, the story keeps living, but where does, where does the work of art, where does the book end? Um, and honestly, while I was writing that, that chapter still, you know, finishing the book, it was still four or five months off for his release date. And we'd been, we've, we'd had two or three release dates and then last minute something happened and he'd lose a year of good time. Right. Um, and who, who knows if within this year of losing good time, if he'll survive. And after one main character, the other main characters in the book, it seems Richard or little jokes, um, he literally rotted to death um, in a first world prison here in Washington state at age 26, preventable uh, flesh eating disease. Um, and a lot of guys um, get, get stabbed to death or taken off main line or shot down by snipers. Um, 
they don't make the news. So we don't know how often this happens. Right. Um, because, uh, and so I had, a, I had a hope that he was going to get out, but I realized I needed to, I needed to leave the book with that question mark, even if I could kind of like type in a final paragraph to the publisher after New Year's got out and everything's been going well. I think it was better for readers to sit with that emotion with me. Although it's not New Year's, what about, you know, inmate X, millions of them out there? Like, are they going to make it out? And do we care? Yep, it was really powerful. And I've, I've actually had a, a very specific experience with a very good friend of mine who was in jail. And, you know, it was just the same thing. It was like he was about to be out and then he would, you know, something would happen and, and uh, you know, he wouldn't get out. And then ultimately he sealed his own fate by, um, you know, he was on his way back from work release and he decided to get off the, the bus on the way back to jail and, and, and smoke crack for a couple of days, which is, you know, clearly insanity any way you describe it. But so I, I really resonated with it personally also. So, but I'm glad he's doing well. Oh yeah. It's my buddy. I mean, if you go on my website or, um, it's really easy to see pictures of meaners and, and hear about what we're doing now or on my Facebook. Um, <laughs> so we were just down in Southern California and, um, uh, that homeboy industries and one of my childhood friends was just like, what are you guys doing tomorrow? Uh, well, we're going to wrap up. And I was like, I'm going to take you guys to Disneyland. <laughs> so to just go back to where I was as a, as a kid, you know, the happiest place on earth, right? And like how they, he bought us like those classic Mickey ears with, with our names uh, embroidered on the back. And it's, it's, it's really turning into a happy ending. And yet we get home and there's five problems waiting for us. But right. He, he would have every reason to just want to be like, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm out. I've got to just handle it. Just the pain of family life and stressors and debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a constant real, uh, roller coaster. But we're, um, I think that might be the next book we write is about our relationship called Thicker Than Blood. It's about rediscovering that there's, uh, there's something, you know, you know, the phrase, you know, blood is thicker yep. than water. Yep. But, but I, I've witnessed there is something thicker than blood. Yeah, I think there is. I actually think there is. We're near the end of time. So just a couple, one of the really fun parts of the book was describing um, how you got connected with David James Duncan, who wrote one of my favorite books ever, uh, The Brothers K. Oh, yeah. Um, that book just blows me away. And uh, But he's very into fly fishing, and so you guys got connected, and you started taking these guys. Um, you know, it was one of the things that you did a lot with them was fly fishing, and there's just, there's there's a there's a happiness that leaks through your writing about those moments mm-hmm. where you're, you know, where those guys are, and you are out there doing that. So um, any... Anything you want to add to that? That was just a, a fun part of the story. <laughs> I wish I did it more. I mean, it's probably the, the problem of most fathers in America that wish they, they love fishing, but they it's it's so easy to get wrapped up in your work and not take the time to like take the kids fishing. Um, not that I'm these guys' father, but it feels similar. Right. I just got to do it. Every, almost every guy I've taken just loves it. I keep thinking there's going to be like, man, this is stupid, but they love it. <laughs> I bumped into a new generation of gang members on the streets now that haven't even been in jail. They're all just ditching school and breaking out windows and graffitiing up uh, school property. And so I'm meeting, I met a gang leader and he's got like eight of these youngsters that follow him. I'm like, ah, you guys want to get out of here? Like, yeah, we always wanted to go camping. I'm like, well, I don't have no sleeping bags, but let's go, um, let's go get into this archery. Cause I, you know, I got into it cause I thought hunger games was cool. And so we go into this forest where the, all these like hay bales with, uh, burlap sacks hanging over them in this with stencil of like a deer or a bear. And we start pulling back these arrows and they're flying and sticking into these hay bales. And these guys just love it. I thought, man, I, I wish I could do this full time and just go straight from the jail to like fishing with guys and doing archery with them. Um, and so I got to do it more, but it's nice to just taste nature. I, I, I mean, that's like the one chapter in the book, the fly fishing chapter where I'm trying to paint a bigger picture of redemption. It's not just about, are inside our hearts or fixing our legal cases, but there's also a reconciliation creation yep. that really rounds out our wholeness. Yeah. So finding ways to get out there. And one of the things that um, your group has done is you've created um, an organization called Underground Coffee. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I was inspired by Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles uh, several years ago when I was getting into unwittingly into gang ministry. And I thought, well, who else is doing this so I can learn from him? And one of the gang members in jail said he, one of his favorite books was a book called G-Dog and the Homeboys. And so I was reading G-Dog and the Homeboys one summer when sleeping in a migrant camp cabin 
uh, when I was also reaching out to migrant farm workers. And it, it, G-Dog and the homeboys uh, down at Homeboy Industries, what they'd done is started to create jobs that, that hired exclusively like guys with felons and with tattoos and were unhirable that down at Homeboy Industries they have um, soap screening and a bakery and a, and a cafe. And so I thought, what could be our industry? And right around then, um, Bob, our founder here at Chirinueva up in the Northwest Washington, said, hey, our, our base community down in Honduras, where we started years ago, they're growing some some pretty high-grade coffee now. And our, our friend Zach, who'd been coming around, who had, had like 17 years as an uh, intravenous needle a drug addict, um, we started scheming and thinking up, wait, what if we bought the coffee from Honduras and our industry will be, will be coffee roasters? And Zach has experienced cooking uh, meth in the past. And so using that, honoring that as a transferable skill. And so we started roasting coffee and we came up with the name Underground Coffee. And now we have a brand, we have a website. Uh, our coffee is purchased right now exclusively, at ch- not exclusively, but almost exclusively at churches, um, giving these guys a job and roasting and packaging and speaking in these churches. But now our neighbors at another coffee roasting company in our valley, in Chidango Bay, coffee roasters, they've kind of taken us under their wing and soon our coffee will be on the shelves of some of their distribution channels and grocery stores throughout Seattle. And if listeners want to check it out, um, we have a website, undergroundcoffeeproject.com. And it's a really simple website. We can throw them together, but we, you can get a subscription and two freshly roasted uh, bags with our story uh, will be in your mailbox and you can, through your coffee or your morning brew, be connected to Underground Change. There's your pitch. Yep, and so you can buy either the subscription or you could just buy a single bag of coffee there also, right? Oh, yeah, you can buy a single bag. Things like that are great. It's a it's a great story and, uh, and a great product. So I'll definitely have links to um, Tierra Nueva, the underground coffee, all that on the, the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to, to join. I really enjoyed this conversation. I could probably uh, read uh, parts of your book out loud for the next two hours, but I'll spare uh, everyone. But I highly recommend uh, checking out the book. It's a great read, and thanks for all the great work you're doing, Eric. This is, this has been a pleasure. This is my favorite interview I've done by far. Thanks so much, and I, I look forward to listening to more of your shows. All right, thanks, Chris. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Peace, Eric. All right, bye. Bye. You can learn more about Chris Hoke and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash hoke.